from the crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's a hot Wednesday night. It's been a long day for me. I moved. Moved today by myself. It was, uh, it was an experience. Something I've done many times. I've said this uh, plenty of times, but it's one of my least favorite things to do in the world. But I am pretty good at it at this point. So it was very efficient with my time. Got it done in like five hours. So feeling good right now. A little, little tired, but very, very excited for the conversation I'm about to have with my guest. Um, for those of you out there who don't know, my guest uh, is the artist behind SoundCloud Hits. Like pretty good looking, the charlatan, uh, and black coffee and meat. On top of that, he is used to be uh, the uh, executive editor at Business Insider and is now currently an editor at Bloomberg and co-host of uh, What Did You Miss on Bloomberg TV. I'd like to introduce you all to Joe Weisenthal, also known as The Stalwart on Twitter. Joe, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. Well, I'm thrilled. Already a life highlight. uh, you you sort of like went through my biography there but this is now i'm going to add that i'm not even being facetious (laughs) no i mean uh fanboying now a little bit been a been a fintwit fan of yours for years now thank you going back to uh to my days when i worked in finance in like 2011 2012 i think i started following you on twitter back then thank you uh Watching you grow from Business Insider to now Bloomberg has been a has been a fun experience. Yeah, it's been a it's pretty it's been a pretty wild ride, and it's kind of fun thinking about how we're um, <clears throat> excuse me thinking about how we're basically ten years removed right now from the financial crisis. And I remember like those were some of my first days tweeting. Like mm-hmm. I remember Twitter on the day when uh, Bear Stearns collapsed and J.P. Morgan announced it was going to buy it for two dollars a share. And I'm like, damn, 10 years just sitting here firing <laughs> off <laughs> tweets. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been fun uh, sort of building, you know, meeting people this way. And I met you through Twitter and sort of watching this community grow. And of course, seeing FinTwit kind of morph with uh, crypto Twitter has been pretty wild. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a, a fun constant along with the various uh, more official career activities. It's, uh, it's my favorite way to consume news. Yeah. And I was thinking about the other day, um, Twitter, the company, has always kind of struggled a little bit. They've never made uh, a ton. You know, they've never really consistently thrived as a business. The stock goes up and down. And so many people on Twitter profess to find it miserable. And, <laughs> and yet, I kind of feel like it's actually the only social network that I have never even come close to reducing my usage of. Like, you know, I used to use Facebook more. Now I find myself hardly ever posting there. Instagram, I post there and stuff like that. But in the end, like, Twitter is just a constant. And I don't see it changing anytime soon. It's, it's like the hive mind. It's like yeah. you're just plugged it's into the pulse of the world. Yeah, it's really wild. <laughs> it's... Uh, that's like I found it like most wild during like war, like when things in Syria were heating up in like 2012, yeah. 2013, you could like go follow Syrians on the ground and yeah, see exactly what was I happening. I remember very vividly that in the early days of the Arab Spring, mm-hmm. people in Egypt, people in Tahrir Square, incredible imagery. And you just sort of realize that all of their media during those things was just delayed and behind. Exactly. And it's, um, I think it's changing us. Uh, Twitter, exp- yeah. Twitter changes the people that use it. I don't know if it's in a good constantly. way or a bad way. I don't way, know either. Yes, I, uh, I have an addiction. It's bad. Yeah, uh, my wife yells at me a lot. Same. <laughs> um, but I'm happy. 
that you brought up, uh, the sort of molding of crypto Twitter and finance Twitter, because that reminds me of your talk at the Coin Center Gala. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to that, you originally started out as a Bitcoin skeptic on November 6th, 2013. You wrote uh, an article on Business Insider while you were there. Uh, Bitcoin is a joke. And you said, Bitcoin? Nada. It's nothing... <laughs> There's nothing keeping it being a thing. If people lose faith in it, it's over. Bitcoin is fiat currency in the most literal sense of the word. You know, I kind of actually stand by that part <laughs> in the sense that if people do lose faith in it, it is over. There is agree. nothing backing it up. I would agree. This is, uh, by the way, this is the tidbit that uh, Pierre Rochard and Michael B- uh, Goldstein posted on their Bitcoin skeptics list. So yeah, oh, I'm still up. on the list of Bitcoin skeptics. <laughs> I was told, Pierre told me I was... Um, he was considering being I, that I might be the first person ever removed from the list, but I guess I still. I don't know if you should it. be removed or should just be an asterisk. Maybe an asterisk is no longer is now somewhat of a skeptic. Yeah, just a moderate skeptic. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think there were. Like, I, I think back to like when, in fairness, a lot of people were skeptics and very vociferous about it in the beginning. It's hard to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. It's hard to wrap your head around why what is essentially a big distributed spreadsheet that everyone Mm -hmm. and this is this is your cell and you have or this cell has your name in it should be worth value and it's one thing to sort of say well it's this global computer and this but there's not really that much you could do with it there Mm -hmm. never really has been it's just the belief that the cell and the spreadsheet is a value fundamentally and it's pretty hard to wrap your head around and I sort of saw in Bitcoin people and in the ideology essentially a rehash of Goldbug argument that I didn't find to be particularly compelling. Mm-hmm. A lot of warning about, oh, it's, there's a, the fixed supply, fixed supply of them. Uh, we're going to collapse and do hyperinflation, which hasn't happened. And I sort of did, I, basically, I didn't. It didn't. It seemed like it sort of seemed like a, like a classic bubble. And this, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, you, if you were to look at a chart of Bitcoin going back to the early days, you can't even see that bubble because <laughs> exactly. it's such a tiny blip. Uh, and you know, who who knows where we're at now? But at the time, it seemed like okay, this is Beanie Babies or Pogs or gold or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people from time to time get this fascination with things, but because there's no inherent uh, reason that the value would be anchored other than the belief, I essentially figured that for a while there'd be people into it, and then the belief would mean that eventually it would have to disappear. And, you know, I think we'd have to admit, like, it maybe one day could. There's Definitely. nothing guaranteeing that it always will. No. Um, but, I'm, but, you know, over time I've come to be less skeptical of uh, some of the arguments. Or Bitcoin itself, in part because I've sort of reconstructed arguments that I've made in my head that are sort of different than the sort of arguments that I didn't find very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how did you how did you reformulate these these arguments? Well, so, what, so for example, I started realizing that some of my more uh, uh, my more economics minded arguments against Bitcoin. Um, I started noticing holes in my own arguments that mm-hmm. made me a little bit uncomfortable. So, for example, it's been noted that um, 
You know, it's not if, if Bitcoin is rising and for most of Bitcoin's history, it is rising apart from a few periods of crashing that uh, it is inherently deflationary. And so that encourages hoarding and that encourage, you know, that is in theory, not very good for a currency. But uh, then I realized that in my mind, the mistake that I was making was I was assuming that prices of goods would be sticky in Bitcoin. So in other mm -hmm. words, uh, uh, you know, you might sell a bicycle for a thousand dollars in thousand U.S. dollars, and maybe you know back then you might have sold it for one Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But if Bitcoin um, <clears throat> jumps in value to two thousand dollars, then you can easily change the price to half a Bitcoin. And so I started realizing that this idea that it was an inherently that the currency inherently discouraged spending was not really accurate because it's just as easy to take down the uh, notional Bitcoin price. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the point is, I just started realizing like some of these assumptions that I had about Bitcoin, they like weren't quite uh, working out in my head. Like I didn't feel <laughs> comfortable with them. And then I also had the thought that, um, so I started revisiting some of my basic assumptions. And then I started thinking about um, actual uh, use cases. And one of the most obvious use cases to me was uh, the idea of circumventing capital controls. Mm -hmm. So you think about, say, someone in China and um, they want to get their money out of the country. There's limitations. We know there's various things that they can do currently. So, for example, they could buy... Uh, uh, Rolex watches or something like that and then um, take them out of the country. They could take a trip to Macau and gamble and uh, accumulate chips and then cash those chips in for U.S. dollars outside the border. They can try to buy real estate in Australia or Vancouver or something. Like and then you start to realize, okay, well, this solves, this is another way of solving the problem. There actually is uh, use here. And so someone might want to transfer several million dollars dollars worth of um, uh, money from inside China to outside China, and something like Bitcoin could just be a bridge for it. So mm -hmm. maybe they're not interested in just holding Bitcoin per se, but for a temporary transaction, turn RMB into Bitcoin, send Bitcoin to someone outside of China, have that person sell Bitcoin for US dollars, it's actually a very elegant solution. Mm -hmm. So it was things like that that started making me uncomfortable with my previous um, analysis. One thing about that example, and of course, I'm sure as you, you know, as you understand, people are always talking about the fees of Bitcoin. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's expensive, it's slow. And that's true, but think about the fees of flying to Macau and then, or, and having to stay in a hotel room. Or think about the fees of, you know, slowly moving money out of the country and buying a piece of property in Australia. So actually, if you think of, you know, if you're going to buy a cup of coffee, the fees are prohibitive. Exactly. But if you're actually going to use it in a way that sort of makes sense for what the technology can do, then uh, the fees don't seem very high at all. Yeah, it seemed negligible to a sense. And right, exactly. And that's uh, like probably the, and we talked on about narratives with Nick Carter on the last podcast, and probably the narrative I believe most is that Bitcoin will become a settlement layer at the yeah. end of the day for large, large purchases or even uh, transfers of wealth between banks in the future and stuff like that. And then, 
Right. I he uh, Nick had a really good post recently about the history. I mean, yeah, exactly that. The various narratives and the sort of digital gold narrative that it, and this idea uh, censorship resistance. So mm-hmm. the I and I find that very compelling. Gold, of course, has never, at least in the modern era, has never been something that people really spend mm-hmm. very much. But that and it would be pretty cumbersome to spend gold. But that doesn't mean that. It still obviously has value. A lot of people like to hold it. It theoretically pr- uh, protects you against some sort of hyperinflationary hyperinflation scenario. And so even if it's not a good spending currency, it might still have value for me. And I mm-hmm. think that's more or less the case with Bitcoin. Yeah. Do you see, would you, uh, would you prefer to hold Bitcoin or gold? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm put you I mean, on the spot. Go- I don't really, I think the main, so I would say this, here's the difference between Bitcoin and gold. I think I've thought about like this idea of safe haven assets and what characterizes a safe haven. And to really understand that, I think you have to think about what is the tail risk that you're protecting against. So gold, I think is a theoretical theoretical protection against the collapse of fiat currency. Mm Um, farmland has similar properties, but I think that that might be protection against some sort of societal destruction. So you, maybe if you think there's going to be a war or something like that, or you just want to get out of Dodge, mm-hmm. then you go to a working farm. So farm, so land has similar qualities, but it's a different risk than with gold. And I think with Bitcoin, the primary thing that you are, the tail risk that you are really protecting against is not hyperinflation per se is not um, some sort of uh, some sort of period of violence, but really about some sort of constriction on your ability to to transact. So that's the importance of the censorship resistance Mm -hmm. aspect of it, that ultimately, if you fear for whatever reason, and people in different societies may have very much to fear, and some people maybe like in the US probably don't have a lot to fear, but different people fear that uh, they may not be able to sell a good or uh, they may <clears throat> whatever it is, um, some sort of, you know, being able to sell something is kind of like a form of expression mm-hmm. at times, then I think Bitcoin is sort of a protection against that. Yeah, a protection against something like to happen in India last year when they just <laughs> say, hey, these, these, uh, these denomination of notes just don't work anymore. Right, exactly. You could just, <laughs> you could just have a situation where you're like, you're not allowed to spend that. And so if you want to protect against something like that, in theory, I think that is where uh, Bitcoin comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, it's a, but I do think this is really important. And again, it's why I never found the sort of recycled gold bug arguments, the anti-Fed arguments to be all that uh, compelling when it came to Bitcoin, because I've never really bought the idea of, and we can get into it later, of currency collapse and hyperinflation outside of extreme cases. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm still pretty skeptical about gold, but I think from like, a, but I think with a different set of risks and a different set of uh, tail risks, uh, that a different type of safe haven asset might make sense. Yeah. So what, uh, what are you still skeptical about Bitcoin? Like you're less skeptical. What are you most skeptical about when it comes to is it the tech side? Again, the yeah. scenarios in which it would become successful or, or just maybe even like user adoption barrier to entry to like, I think the user adoption thing is still really massive. Mm -hmm. And I think, so here's 
I kind of think there's two issues. One is the, the tools to get it and to store it are still completely, I think, unrealistic for most people. Um, the ease with which people can be hacked or stolen, very serious problem. Um, I think there's all kinds of issues with that. Uh, and then I think that in general, company, there's a lot of companies that are sort of dipping their toe into the water in some way that might make it more user-friendly, uh, financial institutions. But what I think is that if it really ever takes off, that we would see a pretty big regulatory response yeah. and that most of the companies who are sort of engaged in transacting it or engaged in um, uh, converting it to fiat for people could easily be shut down or just back off. Yeah. And they say, we don't want to be involved in this. So if it were to really grow, and if it were to become a major vehicle for censorship-free transactions, and there's no doubt that a big category of those would be black market transactions, the type the government does want to see, online drug dealing, mm -hmm. things like that. Bitcoin is clearly good for that. I'm not going to say that it's, it's not only, perfect. It's not perfect. You could trace it. Right. You can trace Bitcoin particularly. Monero and Zcash are probably more suitable for dark. Although there are um, efforts to make Bitcoin more uh, fungible. Fungible. Yeah. And more that, But it's not. It's not a. It's not a given yet. Sure. Like the. No, that's true. Yeah. But if I think that you know if if spending in this way were to flourish, you could easily just say you know what. You, it's very easy for me to imagine banks saying, or the government saying banks, no, you can't do business with uh, Bitcoin exchanges anymore. Is there a threshold at which like Bitcoin's around, like it's almost a decade old at this yeah. point. Like say this doesn't happen for like another five years. Is there a point where it's like, hey, how the hell did you let this happen for, for 15 years? And I've wondered about that, whether there could be a day in which governments, because I think if you look at government, you know, I'm kind of like a blockchain skeptic, as I know a lot of like Bitcoin people are. Like, I'm pretty skeptical that like blockchain technology, excluding <laughs> coins or whatever, is going to be a real important technology on its own for corporations or whatever. But you do have this attitude, I think, that among regulators and among who are kind of like, well, we don't want to stymie innovation mm -hmm. and nervous about uh or nervous about this but we don't want to shut it down whatever and part of that maybe think them thinking that this technology is going to be really important in some way and it seems totally plausible to me that maybe like five or ten years or two years or six months down the road people are going to be like uh this technology really does not contribute much to the existing <laughs> financial system as we know it and we just think it's dangerous that people can transact in a way that we can't easily track and banks don't do business with the exchanges. And I, that, I don't think that would like kill Bitcoin per se, but it would be a serious blow. I Definitely. mean, there's no question about that. Yeah, and that's, it's interesting. It, it, I mean, because as every day goes by that they don't do it, yeah. again, the Lindy effect comes into play. But right. then you also have this interesting game theory play as well where like the emerging markets at the bottom of the barrel, like the Venezuelas, the Zimbabwe's, yeah. the Argentinas, Iran's, blah, 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 that literally have nothing to lose. And if they were right. to sort of adopt this 
do you think like the U.S. and, and the West would let would let them like take over this technology and, and, and run it? And that's that's a, like I don't know. I don't see, know, I like, see. I think it's most likely. I think the opposite, and we've kind of seen the opposite in which the more rest, the more authoritarian the country, mm-hmm. the less open they are to the less encouraging they are of the people using it. Oh, well, recently, Maduro has been telling people to mine cryptocurrency. Has he? He has. Uh-huh. I met with uh, Santiago Siri last week. He's Argentinian, but he's got uh, yeah. his ear to the ground in Venezuela. And uh, yeah, apparently Maduro gave a speech recently where he was like, <laughs> our currency such shit. Like, like he literally hmm. couldn't say anything worse. It was like, mine crypto. But with that being said, he was telling them mine Petro, which is their... Oh. their right. Oh, he was telling them to mine Petro. But you can't, you can't mine Petro. It's all right. mined already. So, like, he doesn't even know what he's saying. But he's, Well, like, that's... Right. Like, he's... But, like, un- I mean, we have seen... I mean, it really... Obviously, Bitcoin really took off in China for a while. Mm-hmm. And they've really cracked down pretty hard. Well, the new, uh, the new China FUD is the ETF uh, approval FUD. Right. And so there's always something. But mm-hmm. the China get, turned out to be real, right? I mean, yeah. in the end, like all, all those huge China exchanges goes, are like not really a thing anymore. Yeah, and there's much less mining in China. Yeah, all the miners got, got spooked, uh, moved outside the borders. Bitmain's actually buying right. a bunch of like land in Texas right now. Right. So China had a real reason to be anti-Bitcoin because, again, capital controls. Is, and then they like acted on it. So... If it got to the point where I think the U.S. government started saying, oh, this is becoming a source of tax evasion, this is becoming a meaningful, um, you know, meaningful black market activity, it's totally plausible to me that they're like, you know, banks just don't do it anymore. I guess this is my follow-up question. Do you agree with that mindset from, like, the government? Like, do you think, do you think Bitcoin is a utility that should be a public utility? Do I agree with it? That's a good question. I guess what I would say is it doesn't really matter whether <laughs> I agree with it or not. What I think, I just think this is how mm-hmm. governments are not going to be particularly inclined yeah. towards a meaningful amount of economic activity that doesn't pass through official entities. That I could send something to you or you could send something to me and there would just be no easy way to know about it or stop it. And um, so I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think governments are legitimate and I think laws are legitimate and I think taxes <laughs> are legitimate. Um, but ultimately, I think, A, governments are probably going to do what they'll do. And B, I don't think that they, would, they could ever really kill Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but they could really crush the liquidity to a point where its utility is diminished or it takes a very long time to build that back up. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, you could imagine a world in which Bitcoin transactions are all done like in a back alley, paper wallets for cash. Yeah, you do open dimes. Cash. Yeah, 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 right. It's And so that's why I don't think that like, even, you know, it, it would kill Bitcoin completely if that ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but one would have to admit that that would crush a lot of the speculative money that's coming into Bitcoin. The people who are just sort of oh, put a thousand dollars in a Coinbase account, like it would, it would sting. Yeah, no, it'd be terrible. But like, as but, like a- but like, but on the other hand, like, I, on the other hand, there is this sort of 
obvious anarchist streak in Bitcoin. I mean, that's mm -hmm. uh, a big part of the sort of ethos. And so I almost think that from like the hardcore Bitcoin perspective, it would be almost disappointing if the government didn't fight oh, that because that would mean that there was what, what was the point of it? That's that's exactly what I was about to say. Like being yeah. a degen Bitcoiner, like people are already mentally preparing for this. Like yeah, the governments right. are coming. Like what are we going to do then? And it's like that people are starting to talk now. Like we should stop fighting with shitcoiners and all band together because we're going to have to fight governments like in the next five to ten years. Right. Like to some extent, if it doesn't threaten regulators, then what have you really? What is the point of it all? Exactly. Go big or go home. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that drives, like, and I completely agree with you, like, this stuff, this is coming, mentally mm -hmm. preparing for it, but, like, I do think it's it's an inevitability in a sense. Like, people have been predict, like, Sovereign Individual is, like, the yeah, biggest, right. like, Bitcoin nerd book out there. Yeah. Written by uh, Reese Davidson and Lee's Moggs, right? Right. Some it's like a, there's like that current politician in the UK Reese Mogg. It's like his mm -hmm. dad or something. Yeah, the book. something yeah. like that. And but they wrote it in 1997, literally yeah. word for word. There will be a future in which there is a currency separate of governments and central banks that's secured by cryptography and yeah. peer to peer. So and, and that's like sort of the uh, crypto anarchist manifesto too. Is right. like this revolution started 40 years ago and cryptography became a thing. And it's like right. everything is going to eventually build. And that's another big theme on this podcast is that we're born at an inflection point. We literally just from a human species at a chemistry level, don't know how to react to the, the pace of change that's happened in our lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, completely agree. And I think that there's no separating the rise of uh, Bitcoin from just the political developments, the changing culture, in terms of how people think about each other and how people think about the relationships that we've seen from the rise of the internet and social media. Like, it's all part of it. Yeah. No, it's crazy how Bitcoin in particular, the community in Bitcoin, like, has shown the value of these internet relationships. Like, I went to a steak dinner in Dallas and met <laughs> people I've been speaking to online for years yeah. and for the first time. And it was like, we were brothers. Like, we knew each other. It was crazy. It was like, the, it was like the first time I ever right. like brought my like nerd internet self like to meet space to meet these people. And it was just like, the internet is a weird thing. The internet how it, it connects. That's us. A, that is a safe thing to say <laughs> that the internet is a weird thing. Um, but yeah, like let's piggyback on Bitcoin and the space in general. You talk yeah. about like private blockchains at all, but what do you think about like Ethereum ICOs? Uh, so I operate from the premise that. Um, if I, if you're going to do something for me, so if you're going to give me a good, if you're going to perform something on your computer for me, some calculation, if you're going to store data for me, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and you want to get paid, you want to get paid in money, right? Like, I know that seems really <laughs> obvious, but I actually, I think this is really important to operate from like a basic principle yes. that anything now people do occasionally do things voluntarily but let's just talk about actual commerce you want to get paid in something of value right so there's all these like people talking about like is our cryptocurrency should they be stores of value mediums of exchange blah, blah blah i hate the whole debate is kind of weird of course something has to be a store of value first. Someone has to want to like <laughs> hold the thing and say this is worth holding. Right? Right? Like th then you can like build on top of that or then say like okay, but it's impossible to spend this. But the first thing that has to happen is you have to think it's a thing. So for example, like going back to um uh circumventing 
capital controls out of China, which I think is sort of continues to be what I think is a classic potential use case, mm -hmm. and maybe actual use case. You couldn't do it with napkins. In other words, you couldn't say, okay, I'm going to convert these uh, RMB into napkins, and you're going to take <laughs> these napkins to Australia, and then someone's going to give you a bunch of money for them, right? Yeah, not unless they were loaded with peyote or something. Right. Like, you couldn't, <laughs> right, exactly. But you could say, but, but why not? I mean, like, why can't, they're actually, napkins are really good because no one would think to inspect um, your bag for them. They wouldn't set off any dogs. If someone did open your bag and they saw a bunch of napkins, they probably wouldn't care. They might think you're weird, but they wouldn't care. Um, they are fungible, so like no one knows the history of it. Like napkins have a lot of characteristics <laughs> of a good medium of exchange, if you think about it, right? But they no, but the but the whole edifice of that idea is obviously nonsense on stilts. It collapses because no one thinks like a suitcase full of napkins are valuable. No one thinks they're money, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you if you jump ahead of the money question, then you've completely you can't jump ahead of the money question. And all cryptocurrencies, all like, so I think, so, I, so they're basically all about paying someone to do something. So you have mm -hmm. Ethereum and then you have a bunch of Ethereum competitors, which are about paying a network of computers to run calculations for say some distributed application to run a database for your token, whatever it is. But the, in order to establish that those computers are getting something of value, you have to establish that it's money. Mm -hmm. That's the basic thing. And I don't know that any other currency besides Bitcoin has yet achieved that or is really on pace to achieve that. And I think to me, that's what I would want to see. And you look at, um, I, that's, that's still the hurdle that I don't think any other uh, crypto has achieved. And I don't even know if Bitcoin has achieved it, actually, but I think it's the closest. It's the closest, and, it, and I think, wow, you're really, we're on the same wavelength here, Joe. I, I love that you just said that, uh, because it, I completely agree. Like, people, so my biggest knock on the space, you obviously, not obviously, but you probably don't listen to this podcast, so I talk about this a lot. Like, people are so fucking impatient in this space, like, and... They don't realize that for money to become money, it takes right. time. It's psychological. Like, yeah, there's a. It's really hard to create money. <laughs> exactly. Um, this was, uh, and you mentioned the uh, keynote that I gave at the. Uh, can we talk about that? Yeah. yeah. So I gave. I mentioned the uh, keynote that I gave at the uh, Coin Center dinner, and it was basically about like what is money and how does crypto fit into it, and it's really hard to create the conditions for what when a new money uh, can exist. But I, but I do think that if you look at money, um, and there's, we could debate what money is forever and never come at an answer, but there is one characteristic that is pretty consistent, and there does seem to be a sort of mythical, mythological, mystical, spiritual element to most money. And so even if you look at a dollar bill, the dollar bill is supported by a lot of things, uh, the requirement to pay taxes in it, the fact that whatever, the, gun, the military, but there's like all kinds of weird iconography on mm -hmm. it. They want, like everyone, they want you to think there's like something of value there that is like deep and profound. And only Bitcoin basically has the great origin story. Exactly. And I think there's, it's funny because Bitcoiners are often accused of like, oh, it's, this is a religion. And I kind of think it's like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> exactly. Um, because it, you know, obviously then there's not only um, 
the origin story. There's the evangelic evangelism of people going out, getting fights. There's the diet of uh, the carnivore diet. Yeah, as you mentioned, your steak dinner. And, like, it makes total sense. Like, it's weird. And people are like, oh, uh, crypto carnivory. But you see, it's like, yeah, religions have a diet. It's proliferating, too. I see more and more people. I'm not a carnivore. Just so you guys know, I'm an omnivore. Actually, on a no-carb, no-sugar diet right now, liquid doesn't count. Allowed to drink alcohol. (laughs) But, no, it is crazy how... It is somewhat religious, like the Genesis block. Uh, the white paper. I mean, it's literally paper, like, like I. It's it's like uh, it's like the Gideon's Bible, and people leave them <laughs> yeah, places. People do. Yeah. The Queen Center just hands them out wherever. Yeah, they yeah. They they literally look like little <laughs> religious pamphlets that a crazy person on the street would give you. You know what? Maybe that's the next big push. We should. This is a, a side side note for Bitcoiners listening right now. We should push to get the uh, the white paper, the Queen Center version of the white paper, in every hotel room in America. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, one of the points that I made in the uh, Coin Center dinner was. Uh, the spiritual origins of gold, which maybe people don't appreciate, but the ancient Greeks. Yeah, we talked about um, this the first time we met. Yeah, so the ancient Greeks mm-hmm. no, noticed that gold was the only metal that never tarnished. Mm-hmm. And so they thought that it had divine properties, which is really interesting because you start to think uh, gold, I mean, gold has a lot of uh, good qualities to be money, but that is one. That, so they thought, oh, this is, must be the money of the gods because it's the only thing that is not human. It doesn't die. Gold is just gold forever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's even uh, gold has those properties. Yeah, and that's again like the big theme, like patience. Like this stuff is going to take time, and that's where I've come to. Like I've been, I haven't said this in a while, mm-hmm. but I found my Bitcoin Zen like last year, middle of last year, a couple of years ago, where it's just like it either happens or it doesn't. Uh, I believe it will happen, but there's going to be a bunch of noise in between, and it's literally just trying to stay true to your convictions and knowing exactly what you, like that's what I think Bitcoin maximalists have in our favor as well is that we've been very straightforward with our ideals and what we believe this will become for, for years where everything else has more of a shifting narrative. I think this also really speaks to the flaws with the sort of Silicon Valley VC sort of like crypto narrative because the the uh, the framework that like Silicon Valley types have is like iterate, iterate, try <laughs> new things, break things, whatever. That doesn't work with money. No, like that it doesn't actually make any sense. And in fact, have you ever heard of a bank run? Like right, and it right, and in fact, it's you almost it's more impressive when so when something doesn't change. I mean, what's impressive about Bitcoin is how little it's changed. Mm-hmm. And so people look at it like, oh, well, Ethereum is smart contracts and uh, this has this and, you know, everything is like Bitcoin plus. But when I, from my perspective, it's like actually the impressive thing is that there's been virtually no change to Bitcoin since day one. It kind of emerged as a complete project. That's another thing. So you think about like Ethereum, like it has all this promise, right, for smart contracts, platform, distributed apps, whatever. It can't really do any of them yet no. because it doesn't scale and they're still working on that. Okay, they might solve that, maybe not. Like Bitcoin, <clears throat> it's already a complete thing. I mean, like even if the Lightning Network were to never take off. Mm-hmm. And so let's say even like micropayments, you just couldn't do it. It still does its job. Exactly. It's in theory. In theory. Yeah. It, it creates censorship-resistant peer-to-peer it enables censorship-resistant peer-to-peer transactions every roughly 10 minutes. Yeah. And 
That's all it needs to do. That's right. what like blows my mind is that people don't realize that. Like that's it simple. doesn't need to do. Like there may be more it can do, and maybe there will be distributed apps one day. It could because the idea of like a distributed apps is not inherently. Um, it's there are appealing aspects of it. You don't need a blockchain for a distributed app though. Like the Silk Road was a distributed app. Like right. Tor and right, right. There, like, that's the right. There, it already exists. Um, Things that we, we already have censor, other forms of censorship. Mastodon, resistant. the right. new Twitter competitor. Which have you I, used that? I have. It's, uh, I have. I've been dabbling in the last week in particular. It's fun. Is it, anyone it, using it? Some people. Like hardcore Bitcoiners are. Oh, like, uh, maybe I'll check it out. They're not happy with the, uh, the censorship. Bitcoinhackers.org uh, okay, is the Mastodon instance for, for Bitcoiners. Um, no, but it's like these, like, it's like every, so actually this is, perfect that we're falling into this conversation now i brought up a tweet by our good friend arbed out yeah the uh well, the best person on twitter best person on one twitter. of the easily the, yeah certainly the best person on crypto twitter the most signal to noise like the highest yeah. signal to noise ratio yeah. in the world i would argue um but he uh he likes to draw analogies to past bubbles and past manias yeah. specifically dot com and the rail world yeah, railroad, yeah. Uh, mania the early uh, 20th century uh and he brought up somebody like Sun Microsystems, which is like a very legit company. Like the CEO Scott McNally, like during like looking back in retrospect on the dot dot com days, bubble days, was like, "Do you realize how ridiculous these basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. Right. What were you thinking?" And he was talking about like his own company. Uh, like was valued at, yeah. at something where their revenues, the amount of people they had, like understaffed, like would never be able to catch up to that yeah, valuation, yeah. and it probably took them a decade. Uh, Arb Doubt had another great tweet recently talking about what capitulation looks like, because obviously <laughs> with the recent crash, people's like, "Oh, is this the bottom? Is this the bottom?" Mm -hmm. and it's like the bottom is going to be like when someone. Uh, on Bloomberg TV is too embarrassed to like, go on a crypto podcast. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Well, like, that'll be the real bottom when everyone is just completely ashamed to be associated with anything like that. So if you think like a 20% decline or an even 80% decline is like a bottom, like that's not what the yeah, end of a bubble looks like. We're talking complete demoralization. Complete demoralization. <laughs> like, what? Oh, I was never, I never spoke at the coin center dinner. No, like, what? That must have been, that must have been someone who looks like me. Uh, that'll be me in like a year or whatever. I'll just deny that that ever happened. <laughs> that wasn't me. I actually had a yeah. stunt double go. Yeah, stunt around. double. I, there's someone else with my name. I was name. A B testing myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's how you know. That's how. That's when the bottom will be reached. Not just this. I mean, yeah, not that. Well, so that's the other big debate that goes on with like Bitcoiners, like at least that I have conversations with, is like how many more of these pump and dump cycles will we have, especially with like the altcoin scene. Yeah. So what we're seeing, I would argue, what we're seeing the last 18 months with ICOs is a, rep, a repetition of what we saw with like pre-mined altcoins in 2013, just yeah. rebranded in a certain way. Right. Um, but again, the the education barrier and the lack of education globally with what this stuff is, like obviously dumb money is a thing and people can spin up new narratives around different types of cryptocurrencies in the future. And it's like, what is... I mean, I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this, but I'm just speaking sure. out loud. Like, how many more of these cycles do we have before people are like, all right, this is... This it is doesn't feel like, like they're going to end. Like, it feels like... Like, I was just looking at the top coins from 2013, mm -hmm. and most of them are, like, completely dead. dead yeah. But it doesn't seem like people will ever 
we're a long way, like we'll ever stop trying to be the next Bitcoin or if there, every time there's going to be an upsurge, there's, it, it'll be a new thing we're not thinking about right now. So most of those ones, I think in 2013, were essentially like Bitcoin clones, right? Yeah. And you, as you mentioned, Litecoin, like coins, yeah. Faster coin, times. Feather coin mm-hmm. and whatever. And then, then there's like the, the things this time, it's like these platforms, these smart contract platforms and ICOs. There's always going to be like something new because it's unavoidable. It's one of the, there was a really interesting, um, a really interesting paper came out a couple of years ago. I actually had one of the authors of it on my podcast about how to actually identify bubbles. Because mm-hmm. it's harder than it looks, but one of the characteristics of bubbles is a proliferation of new securities that are essentially, and that's really, you know, that, there's, there's a few things. So one is obviously rapid price increase. Uh, another one, I think, was like people quitting their jobs and going into that space. So check that box. And there's also like the proliferation Guilty. of uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, of new securities and just the replicate. And it's really the supply that swamps. I was I was thinking about this something I was thinking about the other day. Um, you know, it's always a fool's errand to say like, oh, what pricked the bubble? Like, what was it? Because mm-hmm. in the end, like. That it's a meaningless question because a million tiny things could prick a bubble. It's, it's just about. But I was thinking a pretty significant development late last late 2017 that I think was the clear one beginning of the end was uh, Coinbase's um, putting Bitcoin Cash on their platform. Oh my gosh! And I Middle, think like right, I think it was like two days before it was it was Festivus. I think they did it. They did it on Perfect. Festivus. But it was. But what I think. You know, like it, it was all going to crash anyway because everything was getting completely insane by December and then certainly January. But I think that was actually really symbolic because it was a very clear signal that there is no shortage of crypto. Mm-hmm. So like Bitcoin, there is only ever going to be 21 million. But there's certainly no shortage of cryptocurrencies or coins in general in the abstract that someone could put money into. And eventually this huge wall of money starts to run into a wall of supply. And so that I always thought that that was like, okay, that was a kind of signal that everyone knew all this money was like rushing into the space. It was like institutional money is coming in the ETF. But we also saw the supply increasing to match the demand. And I think that was a sort of pivotal moment. Yeah, that's actually. Because then it's like, what do you have? Like, you know, we're Litecoin Cash, whatever. You just, you just start to, you just, just, you just sort of the the opportunities then become endless. Yeah, you can like let's go full Bryce Winners, Wiener, spin up shit coins, whatever. But. but I also think again, this gets to the Silicon Valley sort of Ethereum mindset, which is that it's good for there to be a lot of coins because it's a race for who can build the best platform. And if you think about it, like a startup. If you think about it like a social network, then it's like, sure, it's like, okay, Snapchat adds uh, stories, then Instagram adds stories, then this. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, where is your story strategy? And if you think about it from like the startup lens, then of course that makes uh, total sense to say like, yeah, let a million coins bloom and we'll see which one is the best. But I don't really think that's a very useful frame for looking at currencies. No, not at all. Because what these people don't realize is if, and I'm not saying this out of fear of competition or anything, but I'm saying this just out of psychology. If any of these coins were to overtake Bitcoin, like what is to stop anything from overtaking them in the future? And you have like a never ending, there's always going to be something shinier. Yeah. And I think this was, I remember when, uh, you know, the sort of early, this early 2018, 
maybe, or maybe, no, I think it was late 2017 and people were really wondering whether like Bitcoin Cash would overtake Bitcoin. And also, the, I, you know, there was that fear that if enough hash power went over to Bitcoin Cash, that Bitcoin would be vulnerable to a, uh, an attack. Um, that Bitcoin would be vulnerable to some kind of attack. Um, which should be, you know, maybe true. Maybe one day that'll happen. But the, if that were to happen, then you would have to wonder about like the entire edifice of anything because if and if Bitcoin were to go down, and again, it might, then how could anyone ever again say, well, this is secure and censorship resistant? Exactly. And so the it's there is this uh, irony that if like if if it's if if they're all in competition and Bitcoin can lose, then you can never then again say about any currency this will be the new enduring store of value. Exactly. So I th yeah, I think your point is spot on. And it's a lot of people don't realize that. And then so then, but then the people that do realize that start to say like, oh, Bitcoin and Ethereum aren't in competition. But I would argue they are because with the way blockchains work at uh, like under the hood level. Like the only application they're good for is money, I would argue. My theory, and I know we're recording this in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, but my theory is that like Bitcoin is for meat eaters and Ethereum is for people who live in Williamsburg. <laughs> and it's basically it's like, true. like Ethereum is basically the Bitcoin of Brooklyn. We're in the same building as CoinFund.io. Right. Like and so basically it's, and that's this actually gets back to like the sort of culture. I mean, it's in, it is I am really interested in the sort of, uh, what's the word, anthropology of the mm -hmm. different coin people, but I do right? find it interesting that like the Bitcoin people are like all eat steak and Vitalik eats like avocados and <laughs> fish Shakes. and stuff like that, which is fine, but it is interesting. It doesn't seem like an accident that he is. A, exactly. He, and he's tweeted about that. And about like what he prefers to eat. And it's like, it's a different thing. It's like, uh, it's a different scene. <sighs> It, no, but it is crazy how these types trend towards each other. But there are there are outliers. We got we got. Uh, sorry if there's background noise freaks. There's somebody cleaning a cleaning something in this office or somewhere. I don't know where. Hopefully it's done soon. But uh, it is interesting seeing people like trend towards like the different coin yeah. factions trend towards certain lifestyles. But I will say there are outliers. It yes. might be, uh, it might be a little, um, confirmation bias. Like Matt Corallo, who is, I'm pretty sure he's like number three and ever commits to the Bitcoin oh, yeah. core repository is a vegan. And yeah. And, uh, Elizabeth Stark of lightning, mm -hmm. who is one of the coolest people in all of Bitcoin. And I'm trying think. to get her on here. Oh, really? She's, she's so busy. Now. She's so, busy. she's so busy. She's so cool. Um, but I think she's also a vegan. So yeah, you yeah. had a great interview with her. Yeah. That was, uh, she came on my show on TV and that was like one of our most watched clips. Ever. Was it? So, yeah. Yeah. Was I think people like, you know, I think so much in, of, especially last year so much of like bitcoin and crypto coverage has just been about like price mm -hmm. and it's like is the price gonna go up How, you know whatever and we just had a conversation like talking about the lightning network and the inherent challenges of scaling any uh blockchain and the i am and so i think people appreciated like a more technical conversation yeah and that's a shameless plug for marty's bent here we'll never talk about price we just talk about ideas. That's a good. That's a good commitment. <laughs> I, I mean, 
there will be one-off instances like during the like crazy run of last yeah, year. Yeah. It's like holy shit! Like I can't yeah. believe it's at ten thousand dollars. But try to focus on ideas. Like price, people get distracted by price, but I think Bitcoin success depends on people actually thinking about how to scale it and right. thinking about the technical aspect of it. Um. This has been a great conversation so far. How far? Yeah. Are Having a blast. 45 minutes in. You sure you don't want any whiskey? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Joe has uh, withheld the whiskey. I'm drinking alone like a degenerate right now. <laughs> um, I need to, I don't, you know, so, I, I need to sound coherent. So let's jump into economics. So yeah. curious, just don't know. Yeah. Were you a journalism major or a economics huh. major? Finance? I was neither. Um, Philosophy? I was a political science. I used to be really interested mm-hmm. in politics. I was a political science major. Actually, at the University of Texas at Austin, where I went, they called it government, but it's oh, political science. Oh, you went science. to UT? Yeah. Hell yeah. And, um, but I knew, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was always interested in markets, um, be, I think because I was in high school and I started becoming aware of them during the dot-com bubble, and so it just became a fascination, and I traded stocks uh, in college a little bit mm-hmm. and made and lost a lot of money. Um, so it was always just an interest of mine, but I never knew like that I wanted to like, do anything with it. And again, you know, economics and markets had always sort of been interested in the economy and economic theory and stuff like that. Um, but I, I sort of stumbled into covering it. It wasn't um, in 2004, I moved to New York and I worked for a small portfolio management company doing research. Mm-hmm. That job ended because the company moved out and I didn't have a job or anything. And I was like, well, um, in the meantime, while I look for a job, I'll start a blog covering markets because it'll at least keep me fresh and keep me, uh, allow me to write and force me to keep paying attention. And I didn't really think that would turn into anything, but then that became professional writing jobs and stuff like that. So that's kind of how I got into this. That's uh, very inspiring for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so that's exa- I mean, I wouldn't... Yeah, I yeah. was unemployed when I started Marty's Bent. It yeah. was like, I need to stay on top. It's exactly what I It's do. just a good discipline, mm-hmm. a good way to like force yourself, whether it's blogging or having a newsletter or a podcast. It's just a good way to like keep yourself like a, a disciplining mechanism. It has been... The newsletter in particular has been one of the best It's great. It's one of, you know, like I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters and most of them I don't open, but I always open yours. Do you? I'm not just saying that. I really do. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, When you first shouted me out, I was like, oh my God, (laughs) Joe Watson. No, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Try to bring a vulgar voice to the space. The Barstool voice. a vulgar voice. Which is actually interesting. So I try to bring a Barstool voice to the space to make it more approachable for people. Yeah. And... What's funny though, the Barstool story, I found this out when I worked at Barstool earlier this year, the person who built Barstool's first uh, CMS, mm-hmm. like Prez, Dave, was literally not gonna create a blog. Uh, he was handing out papers at uh, a really? Boston uh, train station, at Union Station, wherever it is in Boston, like outside every day. It was literally a, a physical paper. And one person that would pick it up every day moved to New York City and missed it so much and emailed Dave oh and was God. like, I miss your paper so much that I'm going to make you a website. Will you please post it here? That's a great story. I had no idea. That person happened to be the first CTO of Business Insider. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's pretty wild. I, yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so... Um, it's funny. Actually, I love that idea of distributing physical paper. I kind of <laughs> want to do that again because I remember when I first started my blog... Uh, it was called thestalwart.com. I co-wrote it with a friend. That's how I have my Twitter name, the Stalwart. Um, 
I had this idea of like every day I should just hire someone to print up like 500 copies of the day's previous posts and like leave them around the financial district somewhere and by the bank. I never did it, but I wish I had. It's good viral marketing. Yeah, that's what I thought. But uh, I should have done it. I still kind of like that idea. It, uh, but it, again, Barcelona. You should do that with your newsletter. Just I, leave it I'll, around. I, you know what? Get someone, you get, sparked an hire idea. an intern <laughs> to like go to like Kinko's every day and print out 500 and just leave them around. But um, I think it's a testament, like this showing up every day, like yeah. what you did with the blog, what Dave did with Barstool. Uh, you started your blog, what, over a decade ago? Or yeah, a long decade? time ago. Yeah. I started it in, uh, I think, 2005. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and it's, but like you are extremely successful now. Dave is extremely successful now. I am not on that level by any means, but I do see the value in showing up every day and, and challenging yourself. And, and it's just, it keeps you fresh and it gets your name out there and to some extent. And that, to me, it was when I first got into it, A, there were two things. I just thought blogs were cool and they were, but I thought like, oh, this is a cool new thing that everyone's doing. So I want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Kind of like podcasting now or newsletters. Yeah, both podcasting's of hot right now. Yeah. And then the other thing is I just thought like, if I don't do something, I'm going to stop paying attention to markets mm-hmm. because I will have no re- real reason to. I wasn't working in finance or anything like that after I, uh, that job ended. And I wanted to stay fresh and I wanted to keep being interested. And I was like, so this is a way to do it. Mm-hmm. No, it's um, no, you're an inspiration. Thank, thank you for spreading the, the good word of the thank bad. Thank you. It's, uh, Everyone should subscribe to it. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a very humble, humble rag. Um, <laughs> But let's shift. Uh, let's shift to economics. Yeah, because uh, very interested to talk about this topic with you. Because yeah. I really, again, FinTwit fan. Thanks. Love your your views on economics, in particular, particularly because I think you do a very good job of seeing all sides or, or seeing out arguments. Yeah. And, and basically being able to well, you to know, put yourself in other people's shoes. Thanks. I mean, you know, going back to what I was saying about uh, Bitcoin and sort of evolving my view on that a little bit over time. I, I try to always stress test my ideas and more importantly, not get too attached to what I believe right now mm-hmm. or think that like what I believe right now is necessarily going to believe. I mean, everyone, you probably have gone through this where you like had some worldview at some point oh. in your life and then you look back. I was a like total lib in college. Right. And like, then you look back and you're like, um, oh, I don't really believe that anymore or I don't find it compelling. And then you're like, well, okay, so if in two years you can change your views this much, then how confident can I be that in two years I won't change my views again? Like, do I really think that if anyone, oh, I've settled on the right answer? It just seems totally implausible to me. So that's not to say, like, I don't have any like, core beliefs or anything. It's more that I don't pretend to think that, like, I've ever, like, arrived at some answer. Mm-hmm. And I think, so when it comes to economics, it's kind of obvious to me that Nobody really knows what they're talking about too much, and that the I would economic- argue economics is a su- you're talking to somebody who studied economics. Like that was my major in college. I think it's a pseudoscience. Like I would say, you know, it's funny. I, I at first I was gonna say I chafe at that word pseudoscience, but I actually think it's probably a good word for economics because it is not a science, and yet people treat it as such, <laughs> or the people the real adherents think uh, to sort of mainstream economics think that lots of things can be boiled down into equations and uh, <clears throat> sort of predictable relationships between inputs and outputs mm-hmm. and equilibriums and stuff like that. 
And it doesn't really seem like the world behaves that way. So maybe pseudoscience is, I, I kind of think of it as a pejorative, but maybe it's just a very fair, um, a very fair characterization of much economics. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And I mean, that's sort of what disenchanted me. Again, we were talking about this before we started recording, but that's yeah. what disenchanted me from finance and then central banking in particular, because I was working at this fund. Yeah. So I... <sighs> It was 2011 to 2014, so that's three years. So it was yeah. right in the middle of like the post-crisis, and I, right. my, I was tasked. I was writing our commentaries and yeah. and running our quarterly calls with our clients, oh, and cool. then we were a fund of funds, so we indexed CTAs, and I had to talk with each CTA, CIO, and I had to ask some questions about what's going on in the world, geopolitics, and then central bank policy. And like so I was a hawk on central bank policy for like three years, and yeah. it literally got to a point where I was like, you don't know what you're doing. Like I, I came out of college fresh. Yeah, but fresh. Look, unemployment is at four percent, and we haven't had much inflation, and the stock market is at record highs. And I would, household debt is. See, this is. Are where you being I, like, facetious? No, are you? No, I, I, are you being dead serious? Yeah, being dead serious. What about participation? Let's talk participation rate. No, there's all. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, this is my problem with the sort of anti. I'm anti. I'm kind of. I'm. I'm anti-Fed kind of, but in a different way than you are. Okay. But we hit, the economy like still is like real like frailties and problems. But so many of the predictions that these sort of like hawkish monetary types have made, they just haven't been borne out at all. I mean, the only yeah, another like that's kind of a problem, don't you think? Well, that, we like, lean on we to, lean on our arch nemesis, uh, John Maynard Keynes, and use his quote: "Markets can re remain illogical far longer than you can remain solvent." Okay? Keynes is great. I was just reading him <laughs> on the subway. I was reading uh, Keynes on uh, the marginal propensity to consume, why people consume, and it's mm -hmm. interesting stuff. But Keynes is great. You should uh, reread him. Don't tell that to Safe Adinamos. I know. <laughs> but th I, this is like, I mean, this is my only problem I've, I've, with like this. I, I sort studied of like, economics. I've read Keynes. I've I read know. my Keynes, all right? But this is the main problem with, I have with like this sort of like gold bug, hawkish, inflation, Austria type is like, it's great in theory. It's just completely wrong in terms of anything <laughs> that happened. And here's the thing. And I said that like, I, I, to your point about economics being a pseudoscience, I don't totally disagree with that. I kind of, upon thinking about it, there's some validity. But, like, we don't live, like, we live in, like, the wealthiest uh, society, the U.S., right now, that has ever existed in history. I would argue that's in spite of the policy. I mean, it's, okay, but then it's really hard to imagine, like, what is this counterfactual that's so much, you know, there's been so many different experiments. There was the gold standard for a long time. Other, For most of human history. Yeah, and then we abandoned it. Now we're like, the lifestyle, We most Americans live a lifestyle that people around the world or in a different era couldn't even conceive of. And if you look at country and, uh, you know, sort of, recent examples where countries try to like tie their hands when it comes to monetary policy or fiscal policy, you see a lot of economic basket cases. That's true. But I would argue that success is confirmation. The success or I, I get what you're saying. Like there's basing the success <clears throat> off the policy is confirmation bias. And there was, uh, it was it, 
beginning in the 20th century, the combustible engine and cars, and then eventually telecoms. I agree with that. There's a lot that goes into success. Yes. And there's a lot. Economic success strikes me as something that is like really hard to replicate. It's kind of like Bitcoin itself in the sense that you just need the right the right conditions, the right opportunities. It's really hard to just sort of say these are the uh, tools to get success mm-hmm. and replicate them. But you know, if you look around the world, like there's certain aspects of governance, property rights, like basic sort of uh, systems that tend to be, work better than other places. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are countries that have gotten a lot wealthier through a, our mix of a, of a sort of market economy with significant role for government in setting rules, in, in welfare, in uh, counter-cyclical policy measures, whether it's fiscal policy or monetary policy. Like, the countries that have, like, generally done that stuff well, like, strike me as having gotten wealthier. I would agree. And look, I mean, like, you have to admit, like, it's just nothing. All, but like, could the like? Okay, it's going back to like your, the idea that the Fed should have been more hawkish or whatever. I agree. Like, there we'll is, never be able to have another Volcker again. Would you agree with that? No, I don't. We will never be able to have another Volcker comes in and raises rates to like eight to ten percent and just says, "Hey, this is where it's at." That'll never happen again because if why? I mean, if we had because inflation out of control, it would destroy. It would destroy our ability to pay back that debt. Well, I don't really believe that that's a problem either because Uh, you are a believer in never being able to roll it over. Rolled over forever. The right? government makes its own money. That's just a fact. I know. No, it's like I, I, I know this sounds very simple, but you know that like the government pays back debt in money that it creates, right? Like that's yes. not controversial. But again, it goes back to the psychology. Like again, and I would argue that not again. I'm sorry. Like say again, yeah. but I would argue yes, it has worked up to this point. But like any black swan event, it only works until it doesn't. So this gets this gets to my view about where I see the Austrians being wrong, and to some extent where I see the non-Austrian mainstream being wrong. All right, let's back up here oh, to preface this because I this is on like things to talk about. This is going to really offend ninety-nine percent yes. of the listeners, but I, I can. If you're if you're can, not offended, you're not living. I can handle it, even though I don't think Austrian economics is a useful lens for seeing the world economy, and I'm not inclined to doomsday scenarios. I appreciate. That uh, Michael B. D. opens this column by admitting that his assessments are mostly a function of his own gloomy personality. Yeah, I like that. So let's okay. So there's there's a lot here, but I'll start by saying one thing is that okay. This is uh, that a lot of like Austrians and gold by gold types and Bitcoin types are, and I, I don't. They're not, can, they're not um, typically they're not interested in being real nice or friendly. And I actually don't mind that per se. So I like, but they're usually people who for whatever reason chafe at the mainstream, right? Yes. And it's not wrong or inherently bad to not want to be part of the mainstream or not want to get along with people. But a lot of people's worldviews when it comes to economics, I think starts at personality. Mm-hmm. And so the personality comes first and then from that comes some set of beliefs, and in many cases, being into gold or whatever is a function of that. 
this is getting back to our argument that economics is a pseudoscience. It's very economics is psychology. At the end of the day. There's some, and I also would say that the sort of like current popular mainstream economics that's uh, sort of promoted by people who work in D.C. is also probably springs forth from a personality uh, that's like very inclined towards conformism. Teacher's pets. In many cases, I think that is a fair characterization. So that so I do. But I do think that like often the central banks are going to inflate the currency and we're going to be Venezuela or Weimar and blah, blah, blah. Most of the time. That is not born, I think, from a very rational look at what's actually going on in the economy and largely born from people who are, by their nature, pessimistic or fear of doom. Now, I do think that in this, to sort of broaden it a little bit, and is that if you look at, if, so we were talking about money, uh, the government, well, I'm not worried about the government paying its debts. And I said, oh, the government creates its own money, to which you might say, well, that's just printing money. Look what happens in Venezuela or Zimbabwe or whatever, when the government just tries to print money. Why is Turkey's or Turkey. Turkey's not? Are they printing? Were they printing money? No, which is no, yeah. which is a good reason to like be skeptical <laughs> that there's some connection between quote money printing and inflation. That's what and I was going to say. Like, I don't think they're printing. No, money. they're not. So that should right there like make. But anyway, yeah, no, they're not, and they have pretty low government debt as well. Um, but what I think it's actually the other way around, and so it's not that governments get in trouble by printing their money or expanding the currency. It's that really dysfunctional governments see cause people to abandon a currency mm -hmm. and then the currency collapses and it loses its value. So it's not the spending or the monetary policy or anything like that. A really great example is Switzerland, which has historically one of the, one of the strongest currencies the strongest, in the world. The Swiss for franc the is period of time. Yeah. And they their central bank does things that would horrify like Austrians and uh, hard hard money types. Like their central bank literally printed up money and bought shares of Apple with it. They instituted a floor for the euro against the franc by which and that we means had to they stop just, trading the franc when I was yeah. Running, and like, so that means they just bought euros. So mm -hmm. like they're doing policies that many sort of hard money types would be aghast at and would make them their face run pale. And the fact that the Swiss franc through it all has been this incredible store of value, very durable, I just think should really make people rethink some of their assumptions about the connection between currency strength, store of value, and monetary policy. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many examples of countries doing things that should horrify people, and it doesn't matter. And I think that these examples should be taken more seriously. Yes. That's my point. No, and I, you're making me think now, Joe. I like this. I'm happy I brought you on. <laughs> That's all I want to do. Man. I just want to make you think. Just want to make you think. No, but, and I would agree. Actually, I would like, I've never been able to articulate it that way, but I would agree wholeheartedly. Like it's all psychology at the end of the day. It's like, again, it's confident. It's like if a, if a country like runs itself into the ground by say being incredible, having a cor incredibly corrupt administration, um, sort of destroying any sort of market functioning, then you're going to get currency collapse in hyperinflation. But it's not the traditional mechanism of expanding or decreasing the money supply. And in fact, if you look at countries that do that and sort of like within a prescribed manner, you don't really see those hyperinflations that people are already worried about. And look, how much did the 
Fed buy-up of government bonds and mortgages, several trillions. And the cost of a loaf of bread is basically the same it was 10 years ago. So that should tell you something. Well, that's another thing. The CPI, yes, the, co- the, the cost of a loaf of bread is the same as 10 years yeah. ago. College tuition, health care, housing are not. Yeah, and, and I they agree. are the most integral parts of our society. Right. And these are some of the most messed up markets that have nothing to do with monetary policy. They have to so do with government. Like, well, yes, but they government they, should they, not be subsidizing tuitions. Should not be subsidizing healthcare. I would argue. I, I, I think the healthcare system is too far gone. We need to implode it and start new. And this is coming from somebody who, when I was unemployed, sure. I. I wanted health insurance. I would have loved... I wasn't married to my wife yet, so I couldn't hop on hers. But I literally was unemployed, living paycheck to paycheck, trying not to spend any Bitcoin, and got fined by the government because I didn't have health insurance. It was just like, what the fuck? Kick me while I'm down. Like that. And I'm opening up about my personal life here. I hope you guys... Well, Trump removed the fine, right? I, I, I hope think, he did. I don't know. I, there's no I stopped fine. paying attention, Joe. I stopped yeah. paying attention to politics. See, and I think there's more people becoming apathetic like me. That's probably true. Which... Um, I disagree on, uh, to some extent, on all of those things. Everything you just said. All right, but if you let's look, go. but I mean, there's no question. Like, look at like the inability, to, and there's a lot of liberals and people on the left too, who talk about um, the inability of developers to build new homes in a city, or to build because mm-hmm. of zoning regulations, things like that. San Fran, get it together. It could be the next Tokyo. Right. So when you sort of like create these constraints in a market. Um, yeah, the S, these externalities. There's, I, there's all kinds of messed up things, I think, with colleges. And I don't know what the best model is for healthcare. But the point that I would say is that none of these things are actually really monetary policy stories. No, no. So, again, it's about that link between, uh, you know, you could say, okay, it's the fact that the you know government subsidizes, although in other countries... They also have huge roles for the government, and healthcare costs a lot less in other countries. So, yeah, like, I don't. Why I, is that? Like, how could we not? Is it the single payer thing? Like, what is it? Like, I, I you know, like, I don't know. Like, if we could, I'm, I'm not a healthcare policy yeah. expert, but I do think that we probably have, to some extent, in our country, a culture of corruption in healthcare, and that there are so many points on the you know whether it's pharmacy benefits managers so many different people who have figured out how to extract rents from the current system Mm -hmm. and well so this goes in again like bitcoinization might happen because people lose faith in the government like things like this are like small things that bubble up healthcare in particular like right now we got an opioid uh epidemic in this country and again that's enabled by the healthcare industry in particular like the people that are supposed to be healing us are driving opioid addictions whether this actually whether you know whether you can draw a line i'll say this whether you can draw a line between all this and the future of bitcoin i have no idea but i will say that there is a lot of stuff that's happened in the last 10 to 20 years that i think has caused a pretty serious crisis of faith in both government and uh large corporations Mm -hmm. and so i think um there's a really one of my favorite books. Um, there's this book, Chain of Title, uh, okay. by this guy David Dine, who wrote about. Um, it was just about the mortgage crisis, mm-hmm. and it was about people who tried to deal with banks to um, get some sort of adjustment on their mortgage during the downturn. And this is the type of thing 
that banks want to do because it's they don't want people to just default and walk away on their mortgage. Mm-hmm. So if they can do a workout of it, like, oh, we'll reduce your monthly payment and extend the length of the loan, they're inclined to do that. But the banks and the 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 chain of title, which is where the book came from, like uh, the title came from, the book, um, was so messed up and so disorganized in terms of like who owns this document, who services the loan, who collects the money, it was essentially impossible for the average person in many cases to deal with that gigantic corporate bureaucracy. You would call up your bank and they're like, oh, we don't own your mortgage anymore. Then you call up this and they're like, yeah, we, we, uh, we own your mortgage, but we outsource the collection of this company. And then you call up that company and they didn't answer the phone. And so there's all kinds of things, whether it's the financial collapse, whether it's dealing with your healthcare company, which drives people completely insane, even mm-hmm. when you have good insurance, whether it's dealing with the banks uh, during a time of financial stress, even trying to come to some mutual thing. Life, modern life is filled with sort of experiencing sort of, I think, one sort of large bureaucracy after another mm-hmm. that I do think it has contributed to a disintegration of just sort of general trust and probably increase in alienation. And this, it is within that within that environment that I do think something like uh, cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin specifically finds a welcome a, a welcoming home. I couldn't have said it better. And it just makes sense. And again, this and this all ties together again with being born in that inflection point. Like people are just very confused right now. Like what what is up? What is down? Especially, there was a tweet. I forget. I think it was that Ed Lattimore guy. Do you follow him on Twitter? I don't know. He's I like mean, a, I've definitely seen those tweets. I think he's like an ex-Navy SEAL or something like that, like sending inspirational tweets. But um, the tweet in particular is like, if you were born between the years of 1983 and 1993, like that 10-year period, like you were literally the bridge yeah. between right. the industrial age and the information age. Like, yeah. you, like I remember caller ID becoming a thing and being like, oh my God, I can see that Aunt Lisa's calling me right now. Like, this right, is right. crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's it's like, right, right. what? And now we have like yeah. smartphones. Like you can, I could, I could hop into a virtual reality and talk to you. We could be, we could be thousands of miles away having this conversation looking like it's face to face. Like we have seen, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I would argue that you are in the same bridge. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm just pre-millennial by like one year. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I miss being able to. You don't get trashed in, in, in yeah, exactly. every other article. I didn't kill, I didn't kill mayonnaise. <laughs> what was the last thing the millennials killed? Or something? No, uh, it was mayonnaise. That was mayonnaise? the thing that was everyone was talking about this week. <laughs> was it? Millennials killed mayonnaise, <laughs> apparently. I don't eat mayo anymore. I love mayonnaise. I, d- I, I love mayo, too. Yeah, sorry. Right. I haven't had it in a while. I haven't had a sandwich. Joe, I'm on that no carb, no sugar Yeah, diet. yeah, I know. So you don't have anything to spread. I don't eat carbs either. I try not to. Looking svelte. Looking Thank svelte you. right now. You got to for the TV. Yeah. Is it true what they say? Does the camera add it, 10 pounds? So it's funny because early on when we, um, after the show launched and we would do, you know, periodic uh, show reviews where we would watch an episode and, uh, you know, sort of critique it and see how it went. And all I could think about is like, oh my God, that double chin. <laughs> I can't believe I look like that. I look like I'm bursting out of my suit. So it's like, I can't, I can't even, I can't even hear anything that anyone is saying in the show review because I'm just so focused on how I don't like the way I look. So I'm the I, same way. I ha- I got a New York ID to get a new, um, get a new passport. Um, very particular story. 
got a New York ID, but I needed to renew my license, which is in Pennsylvania where I'm from. Um, I was going to be okay with losing my license. Like, don't need to drive. But uh, the New York ID was so ugly. I had, like, a double chin, looked so bad in it. I was like, I'm going to PA. I'm getting a new license. Yeah. And it was bad. And yeah. luckily, I got... I've got a body type for podcasting, so this is perfect <laughs> that, that we're behind the mics. I do too, video. but I, I never expected to be uh, <laughs> on air. I, so I also have a face and a body type for podcasting, but they stuck a camera in front of me, so I have to at least put in the effort. Well, uh, yeah, let's jump in. What, like, what was that like, like becoming a, a TV like media host? Like, it was. It, it's really fun. It's the best. Um, I is not something I ever like aspired to do when I was sort of blogging and then writing more professionally. I've been business insider. Um, I never thought, oh, I want to one day be on TV. Um, I had gone on TV as a guest a few times from here and there. I didn't love it. Mm -hmm. uh, it felt like it was short conversations that weren't in, nice and in-depth like this conversation. Um, but then, uh, so Bloomberg came to me with the opportunity to co-host a show there. And I was and also do some editing and writing. And I said to myself, like, well, even though I've never really aspired to do TV, how many people ever get a chance to say, like, I co-hosted a TV show? So even if it totally flames out and I'm terrible at it, I'll always be able to say, like, oh, I hosted a show on cable for a little while. And when I thought about it that like that, I was like, okay, I can't like really say no to this opportunity. Uh, but I honestly, I love it. And I like it way more than I expected. I really like uh, the co-hosts that I've had. My colleague, <clears throat> my colleague Scarlett, uh, she is like the most, the coolest, most professional person that I've mm -hmm. ever worked with. Makes me feel incredibly comfortable. And then I'm on TV for an hour and a half each day. And every day I get to talk to smart people on camera about stuff that I like. So every day I talk to people about economics and markets and politics and that's pretty great. And if you just think about it like that, like having a conversation with someone you respect about something you're interested in, and then there happens to be a camera there, it's a pretty cool job. Is it? And I, and I really, I genuinely enjoy it. Was there like a, an adjustment to the camera or anything? Like absolutely. So I was never really nervous, but either it's one, um, it's one of those things where. There are certain technical aspects to it that you just have to become comfortable with, knowing what camera is on, or the ability to talk. It, took, it was really hard for me in the beginning to talk to someone. I have an earpiece in my ear, and someone mm -hmm. says, okay, just 30 seconds, or don't forget to ask about this. And that would really jar me on air. I'm like, what? Uh, but you just get better at it. It's just mm -hmm. like anything else. Nobody is, except the truly gifted, are really going to be that good at it the first handful of times. But that was also another aspect of it that appealed to me, which was just, it'll be fun to be bad at something and to try to get good at it. That's, and so it's been, that's also been a fun aspect of it. That's uh, something that my mother taught me is baptism by fire is the best yeah, way. Yeah, it's great. And it's in, you do I, a great I, job. Like, thanks. No, I, it was I actually, don't know that I would actually, I appreciate you saying that. I don't know that I would actually say that I'm good at TV. I'm definitely better than I used to be, but I like... The process of learning something new. I think you're. I think you're very good. That's why I, I was actually nervous, like prepping for this interview <laughs> and having you, like interviewing an interviewer, is, is something it. very uh, daunting for for a lowly podcast like Tales from the Crypt. Thank you. Um, so I appreciate you coming in. But yeah. this is a good segue to the, the next topic we want to talk about, which is like mainstream media coverage of Bitcoin, yeah. and cryptocurrency, yeah. in particular. I will say this hands down. 
again, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but you are the best journalist in the mainstream that's covering the sector. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. Yes. Um, you know, obviously, I, I have a few thoughts. So obviously, mainstream media has come under like tons of criticism. Literally, anytime you say anything about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, you're just going to be in for like tons of abuse. But, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully most journalists are used to getting abused. Uh, so you sort, it sort of comes with the territory. But there is a lot. And people are like, oh, you don't get this, you don't get that, whatever. I think there's a few things. I mean, it's still really new. Um, so it's hard. new things are hard to wrap your head around. I mm-hmm. still have a hard time wrapping my head around it. Um, there's a natural inclination to try to fit it into, particularly from a market standpoint, uh, fit it into an existing asset class bucket. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it, oh, maybe a, another episode one day, you know, it's a whole separate discussion. Like what is Bitcoin from a financial perspective? Like what kind of asset class it is? I can make this two episodes if you want to. Yeah, it could be a whole other episode. <laughs> I have thoughts, but that's for another time. But it doesn't fit neatly into anything. It's kind of like a currency, but kind of currencies like typically don't go up like 10,000% in a year. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a commodity with the mining pro- process, and but it's obviously, but it's not really used for anything. So it's... Before you go any further, would you see this as a use case? So we're talking about China and Bitcoin in particular. At one point, somebody embedded information about the Tiananmen Square massacre into a Bitcoin block. So anybody in China could access that where That's it's completely blacklisted. Is that a use case? I think it could be. The idea of the Bitcoin blockchain as a repository of information strikes me as a plausible thing at some point in the mm-hmm. future. Yeah. So, yes. And that's I, I haven't explored that that much, but that does seem plausible-ish. The other other idea that non-monetary information and that the network secures that strikes me as interesting. Yes. Yes, interesting. And it's it's, it's a very, very narrow niche use case where it's like information in a block and you can only fit so much information in where it's... It's interesting. interesting. Um, But, you know, it's not really... doesn't really behave like a commodity. Mm -hmm. I also think, um, you know, there's... Uh, it has some equity-like characteristics. Anyway, people think, you know, we have these uh, asset classes that have existed forever. Mm-hmm. Stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. And it's really hard to wrap your head around something totally new. And there's no real, uh, we're used to quoting experts in this field, but there's a lot of people who are expert-ish, but turn out to be charlatans mm-hmm. or... Uh, just have something to sell you or whatever it is. So there's no like real experts because every, let's be honest, even the experts are trying to figure it out themselves. Yeah. The experts I speak to, the developers, Matt Corral is at like a 5% chance of success. Right. That's like an expert for you. Right. Right. And then I think obviously the media likes things that are going up and down a lot in price Mm -hmm. and that's very exciting. And so whether it's altcoins or, Ethereum, whatever, it's just like a compelling story, but I also get why that drives people crazy. But on the other hand, like there's real money, especially uh, in this space, even outside of Bitcoin. So like you have to like talk about that stuff. So I get why people are frustrated in many cases, but I think the media has got it 
continues to get a lot better by and large and mm-hmm. that there's a lot of good at a lot of different places. I'm proud of our coverage of Bloomberg, uh, but at a lot of places, I think there's the quality of coverage has gotten better and better and it just keeps getting better. But I understand, like, you know, of course it was pretty bad in the beginning because who knew what it was? Exactly. Uh, I'm going to give a little flack to the at crypto uh, account right now. They, they made a, a vast mistake with the Coinbase data earlier today with the 50,000 signups a day or whatever. No comment, but, uh, <laughs> you know. No, and that's the other errors thing. Errors happen. No, and speaking as somebody, I always hate to consider myself media, but obviously I'm media. I'm yeah. speaking via audio and written media every day. Um, but it, it like I, I did, it took me four years to build up the courage to even talk, tweet about this, right. let alone like write long form about it. Right. I can't imagine like the daunting task of being in a newsroom and like, Hey, Bitcoin's your, your new, uh, your new, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Beat. Beat. Yeah. Maybe it's beat. really hard. Exactly. And there's a really steep learning curve. And yes. I think that, uh, you know, the good coverage at various outlets has really been about like, well, last year and still is just a golden age for scams. Yes. And there's so many r- people in crypto who are just trying to rip people off and sell magic beans uh, or whatever. And I think uh, we've done a lot of good coverage as of others of just like all the bad stuff out there. Yeah. And again, I want to repeat that I think you in particular as a journalist are doing the best job out there from and I hate to like I hate to like I always say like don't ever like label me or anything, but Bloomberg is a mainstream media yeah, company, yeah, that's obviously. Um, and it's interesting, like being I don't know, like am I indie, indie, whatever you might call yeah, it. Yeah, independent media. And having like, I obviously I have strong views, but sometimes I see people writing like they have these platforms. I'm like, oh my god, like let me like reach out to you and like like help you out here but it's like well you should do it's that bu- it's like yeah I'm, I'm shy i'm shy believe it or not i'm shy i'm very uh i'm selectively introverted and i don't i never want to impose my views on other people which i'm doing every day actually but well i'll say this you know bitcoin or crypto aside um people they you know journalists are just normal people who want to learn more about are something. they yeah what yeah. i thought they were aliens no it's like it's like people i i mean it's gotten really crazy with politics exactly lately. so let's jump but, into this like yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy environment like, right now but the i people have imaginations of like what they think are like oh journalists are, have an agenda or like if i say something negative about bitcoin or something like that like oh bloomberg is in the pocket of the big banks and of course it's like you have no idea how it works. It's not how it works. It's not how, no one has ever come to me and said like, oh, you know, we, we have a lot of clients who are big banks, so you have to write about this. Like, it's just, that's it. that fantasy that people have, <laughs> that there's like some agenda or some advertiser agenda and that everyone has these like marching orders, is just could not be more wrong. Well, and I completely agree because that's applied to like every industry. Every, every Every industry. Yeah, yeah. Like when I worked at a hedge fund, people were like, yeah, you're a scumbag, but like, yeah. I was like, no, number one, I'm not. Like, this doesn't well, matter whether it's not me. It's not me. Like, I'm not the one collecting money. But like, the CEO of the firm I work for, Dave Cavanaugh, shout out Dave Cavanaugh in Chicago, was the nicest, most wholesome person I've ever met in my life, and he would never try to like rip anybody off for a yeah. dime. And yeah, I do think people just have this idea that like, 
or even Bitcoin aside, like or the Federal Reserve, like people just have this imagination that like journalists have these like ideological marching orders and that all stories have to back them up. And most journalists are like pretty open-minded and want to learn about stuff and no one is like telling them to advance some agenda. So yeah, it's, it's not nearly as exciting as it is. This is a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Make it up. Exactly. Uh, what a world we live in. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? That's a good question. It's funny. Like I'm like a, uh, I'm a intellectual, like optimist and like, but I also have like this like pessimism in my gut. Mm-hmm. And I've always had this my whole life. Like I was worried about like Y2K, but then I, <laughs> but I think like I really was, I was like, I, I honestly, I remember 1999 being actually anxious. Like mm-hmm. is the whole like electronic system going to go down? Of course it didn't, but I can use that example. Cause that sounds funny now. Like, Oh, I was nervous about Y2K and that turned out to be a complete nothing, but I was probably more nervous than most people. But then I can go back and say, okay, well, like, this is just my, this is my personality. Like, I get nervous about stuff. Mm-hmm. I get anxious. Um, so I, like, sort of, like, temper that intellectually with, like, a knowledge that I sort of, like, am tilt towards anxiousness. So I try to keep it in balance. But it's, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's, like, pessimism. But going back to what we were talking about earlier with the internet, like, we do live in weird times. Mm-hmm. And it would be kind of weird... If in say ten or twenty years, society looked anything like it did ten or twenty years earlier, or politics just because we were going through such intense change, mm-hmm. so much of it driven by I think communication and new media, that there's I don't know whether it's pessimism, but I guess I'd be pessimistic that things will be particularly stable. Yes. Which maybe could be good. I mean, it could be like a instability that leads to something great. I don't know, but well, that's so. That's what I wrote <clears throat> about yesterday in the newsletter. Tour de Meester, shout out Tour, probably one of the most level-headed mm-hmm. analysts in the space, Adamant Research. But he reposted a letter he shared with his investors three years ago, um, talking about building stuff in these types of uh, societal changes. So the last one was the industrial revolution with the combustible engine with cars. Yeah. You had companies like Ford, Porsche, uh, Volkswagen being yeah. built at the depths of the depression, like literally yeah, the true. worst parts of the depression. And he thinks something similar is going to happen uh, around this juncture of history hmm. is where potentially I mean, we're seeing it happen, like where you have sovereign debt crises and stuff like that, and well, potential yeah. to go into a global recession. You will see things emerge from I from mean, this desperate state. I mean, there's no question. Like, if you look at a lot of what was built, especially in tech, like was is very different today than it was pre-crisis, mm-hmm. pre-financial crisis. And I, I just think that. Um, the sort of anti-hierarchical nature of a lot of modern communication technology is just a big deal. And that to some extent, wow. um, societies and countries are defined by the, the media. And we don't even really know like what a society that's sort of built on social media looks like. <laughs> because everything prior to it was like structurally similar to the state. In other words, you get, it's very top down, you mm-hmm. get your orders, you get your news top down. And then it's sort of like the structure of media kind of resembled the structure of politics. 
And now we have a situation in which the structure of politics is very different from the structure of media. That's why Trump won. I would I argue. Think I, I, I think would argue. the change in media is a big aspect of it. And this is going to create just more and more tensions, I think. And it's it's fascinating, man. It really is. Like, and that's like the only thing I say. It's like fascinating to be alive during this time and, and watch it happen is... Yeah, it is uh, Who... Like, who has control anymore? And that's, like, what I worry about. Like, I would argue that I'm an optimist, but I worry about, like, like true anarchism. Like, what Bitcoin sign guy came on, the guy that hand, yeah, yeah. held up the buy Bitcoin sign behind yeah. Janet Yellen, he de-alienated between an anarchist and an anarch, which is, which is very, very, was a very new thought for me. Where, mm-hmm. like, an anarch, What's an anarch? So an anarch is... So an anarchist is somebody who's somewhat nihilistic in their views. Oh, I see. They just want anarchy for anarchy for like, they don't want any structure at all. But an anarch is somebody who wants anarchy for, and I could be butchering this. I'm not, I have to go back and re-listen. But like an anarch is somebody who wants anarchy for ideological reasons. Like this is actually a better way of, with the technology that we've been giving of organizing our society. And they Mm. they proactively... Like the sovereign individual would be a book written by a couple of anarchs who are like, "Hey, the world is trending towards this direction, and if we are going to go into anarchy, we should be true anarchs, where we try to help everybody out by giving them access to this information and teaching them about these technologies." Got it. Whereas I see what you're saying. Whereas an anarchist would just be like, "Fuck everything." Like, right. Uh, I, I, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, and um, that's something I've been thinking about more recently. Where it's yeah, like, uh, but. And then at the same time, like, you're talking to somebody. So I think I have a very unique... I would love to hear this. You're almost a decade older than me. How old are you? I'm a, I'll am be 38 in like two weeks. That was that was very rude of me to ask, but you're exactly... It's fine. I'm not offended. You're exactly a decade older than me. Right. I'm 27. I'll be 28 in nine months. And I love how we, we put our wedding thing, fingers on oh, our yeah, thumbs. Yeah, I'm playing with my, uh, playing with my ring. We're, we're playing with our wedding uh, rings. I, like, I fiddle with my ring because... Um, I don't want to. Well, I don't. I actually need to get it resized because I lost a little weight, and so it's. I'm like the same way. I finger. went surfing the other week. So, so I actually now it like slips off my finger a lot. Yeah, I went surfing the other week. It like it fell out. I had to like dive to the bottom of the ocean. To get you my found ring. it? Yeah. I found yeah. It. You know what's funny? Uh, I lost my wedding ring like about a month after I got married because uh, it also fell to the bottom of the ocean. But I also <laughs> found it. It was in shallow, clear water. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but going back to what I was saying, what the hell was I saying? Something um, about how you're 27. Yeah, so I'm 27. And yes, so I think where... So the financial crisis in particular to me, like I was a senior in high school in the fall of 2008. I graduated yeah. high school in 2000, the spring of 2009. But in the fall of 2008, I just so happened to be taking an economics elective while Lehman Brothers was failing, while yeah. everything was failing, which sent me on a journey through college to learn more. Like, so I went to a college with a know your enemy type mentality. Of like, mm. how the fuck could it get this bad? So I went to go study economics, learn about money and stuff like that. And so that's the mentality I have, like being in that situation at that certain time and having like those emotions inflicted on me yeah. and, and following that in particular. Like, am I biased because of that or... Yeah, I mean, I don't know if like I would call that as bias. Like we're all like products of our environment in, in, in the, the unique moment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, something that I think a lot about with regards to e- economics 
is how many people who are in power right now uh, had their formative years in the early 80s when inflation was the biggest danger and the degree to which that guides people's assessments of the risks. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, even for years after the crisis, kind of seemed pretty obvious to me that like unemployment was still too high and that inflation was just not a thing that was happening. We always say it's like, oh, if the Fed, we got to raise rates, got to raise rates, inflation is going to take off. And I kind of understand that from the perspective of like, if the most important years of your life were during the oil crisis, were during like surging inflation in which your cohort was part of the people that like beat inflation and stuff like that, then that's always going to be what you fear. And so I think like, again, thinking back the last 10 and 20 years, the financial crisis and the Iraq war, I think two things that just created extraordinary amount of disillusionment both with business, with the banking system, and with the government. Mm -hmm. And that we are going to be living with the sort of scar tissue of that disillusionment, I think, for a very long time. Yes. Number, I mean, I think I'm a, a product of that. I'm yeah. a product of that scar tissue. Yeah. And for me in particular, I was 17 years old. Like, I was a young... I'm, I'm a young student. I was a yeah, young, yeah. like I was always one of the youngest in my grade, but like at 17 years old, the fall of 2008, we went through the TARP bill and I was right. a 17 year old. Like right. these politicians in Arkansas, like to pass this TARP bill, like an arrow has to be sharpened in a certain way. Like they had so many, like oh. <laughs> they had so many clauses in it right, where right. it wasn't really about like saving yeah, the financial it's one world. of those things like where you don't want to see how the sausage is made exactly and it was like at 17 i was like what the fuck is going on here and i think that's really what's driven my ideology since then and yeah well i think it, i mean you know I, I it's funny i um it's for as bad as it is here i was thinking about like in europe and where you've had youth unemployment at times 25 40%, 25%, 30%. Like what that does to an entire generation, mm -hmm. that people in their formative years out of college for maybe a decade saw elevated unemployment. It's just extraordinary, it's extraordinarily depressing to think about the, the long-term consequences that will have. And this is why, uh, you know, in favor of counter-cyclical policy, one of the arguments that people make for like reducing government debt and spending mm -hmm. is they'll say, oh, like think of the burden of the next generation that has to pay it back. I say, think of what it does to the next generation if they grow up in a time of no jobs, Tightening. poor, uh, poor education and healthcare prospects. So I think I, you could cut it both ways. I don't yeah. Know. It's fascinating though. It's crazy how how intricate we are as humans like anything can change our our psychology and i'm not trying to pontificate on hum humanity or anything but it does like something i'm still trying to grasp like i would argue like like you said like you change your political yeah. economics views like i don't know if i have like set like right. views on everything yet like i'm still it'd be weird like, if you did and you know another thing and this gets back to my views on like um money and what is money it's like all of the interesting questions in life are impossible to answer and so it's like it's like answer saying like what is money is like kind of saying like what is love and if mm -hmm. no one has an answer for that we know that nobody has an answer for that because people keep writing songs and doing poems and paintings that try to like capture that 
Which, like, if, if there was a clear answer, you wouldn't have to write a poem about it. You're just like, oh, what's love? Well, here it is. But it's clearly that. So it's like, what's money? Like, we can kind of, like, approach an answer. It's like, uh, store of value, medium of exchange, whatever. But it's like, we know we're never really going to settle on the answer because no one ever really has. But you just hope that sort of, like, over time we, like, iterate to a view that we, like, kind of see the outlines of it. And I think all these questions about, like, sort of, the nature of humans and the nature of humans interacting with new technology and media. It's like, are we going to come up with some answer or some worldview that's right? No, but if we're lucky, maybe eventually if we like squint, we like kind of see the outline of the answer. And that's sort of like my thinking on all this stuff. Deep. Joe goes <laughs> deep. <laughs> no, I lo- like, and I would completely agree. And I'm, fa- I'm happy that I'm alive right now. Yeah, I'm great. very Me happy. Too. That I am. Absolutely, Me, likewise. In this particular time, hundred percent. I'm happy I uh, did not have to grow up through the '70s and '80s like my parents. Yeah, know. and every and every and that's right. Like every generation seems to have their sort of like existential angst and like their thing that they're scared as hell about. Mm-hmm. And you think about like you know the awful things, the awful periods of discrimination and codified racism that we've had in this country you think about fear of nuclear annihilation you think about being drafted and being forced into a war like there's no generation that just sort of is like oh yeah it was really good they just had it easy like there are people there's always gonna be something so obviously i think right now we live in a time of incredible change and it's not obvious that it's going to end or that it will lead us to some place that's much better maybe it will regardless there's always something Exactly. And that's, you get lost in the sauce, like, while you're living. Yeah, so you just gotta, exactly, you gotta step away and sort of look at. Put it in context. Yeah. That's one thing we talk about on this podcast. We are, uh, we're getting deep into this conversation. I think, almost an hour and 45 in. Wow. I think we could spend the last 15 minutes of this talking about your relationship with Comfortably Smug on (laughs) Twitter. (laughs) By the way. For you, guys, you, for you freaks that don't know, Comfortably Smug is some um, Anon Twitter account. and You know his name is, is out there. I don't know. Oh. Uh, yeah, he was like a head funner or something like that. It's, uh, it's out there. You can find an article on it. You, yeah. We're not going to dox him right now. But right. Joe wasn't expecting us at all. But my favorite interactions on Twitter throughout the years have been you and Comfortably Smug. You know smug. we have the same birthday. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. We were both born <laughs> September 2nd. This makes a lot so of sense. So we're sort of like... Twitter brothers, Twitter twins, and we have the same birthday. As have you ever met him in real life? I have. Okay. And in fact, that is there's actually for people who want to sleuth and Google it's that's all that's 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 been written about. Has it? Yeah. Um, again, like I've never met comfortably smoke. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I just want you to know it's my favorite Twitter ongoing Twitter interaction. Thank you. Of all time. It. Thank you. It's hilarious. He's a funny guy. He is. Is he funny? Is it funny in real life? Has yeah, he yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a funny guy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, you have any questions for me? <laughs> well, I am like curious. Like, uh, how did you get into why? How did Bitcoin become a thing for you? Why did you get into it? Yeah, like I was saying, like I was studying. I think it was when I was a senior well, in high school. Actually, let me rephrase the question. When you first heard about it. Because, like, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I was like, this is dumb. But you didn't have that. Like, what did you, what, what about it said, like, oh, this makes sense to you? So, I was in Chicago. It was 2012, 2013. 
I forget exactly which year it was, but I was studying economics at DePaul University. And I just so happened to be taking a course on monetary or um, monetary policy, like specifically monetary policy and how it works, and was writing a paper on monetary policy and sure. literally Googled like the Googling stuff and stumbled upon Bitcoin. I was like, oh, this is interesting. So that was like my first brush with it. Yeah. Was like, uh, like this is like a potential sound monetary policy. I think like six months later, the Silk Road started blowing up and stuff like that. It's still in college. And then I think I'd started interning at this futures fund where I was getting mm. more in depth to, with central bank announcements and having mm-hmm. to follow that stuff and uh, decided to like dive like fully in like my senior year of college. And hmm. uh, I just, again, I think it's because of the rebel nature of number one, me being from Philadelphia in general, where being from Philly, like you're naturally contrarian, I wouldn't <laughs> leave or naturally confrontational. Um, and then having that experience as senior year of high school being like, this is like, I just had like an innate feeling and like that. Yeah. And I was taking that class and while the, while Lehman Brothers was failing when all yeah. that was going, I was like, this just like isn't right. Like, yeah. there has to be some other type of system. And I was, I wasn't actively looking, but was like open to, hey, there, there probably is something better out there. And I found Bitcoin and was like, I think this might be better. And that's why I went down to it. I do think that again, you know, it's interesting that there were the group of people, the uh, cypherpunks, who were trying to create, for years prior to Bitcoin, some sort of digital cash. Mm -hmm. And going back to this sort of... um, it the, when when was the white paper? Two thousand eight was the uh, white paper. Halloween two thousand eight. Halloween two thousand eight. Yeah. And so it's like, in addition to like all of the, <clears throat> there are so many um, so many good aspects of like the Bitcoin mythology, like the fact that no one has ever been able to figure out who Satoshi Nakamoto was. The white paper. Um, I think it's it's interesting that. Satoshi's uh, wallet, like he's never spent from it, mm-hmm. he or she. Um, we don't, we really don't know. There's a theory on that. I'll, well, I'll let you finish, and I'll tell you the theory. Um, that's never been spent, and so it's like, in a way, it's like this person arrived on Earth, created this thing, didn't even like want to like get rich on it themselves, and then disappeared. But also the fact that it happened at a point when, again society was receptive to it. And it, like if it had come in like 96, when everyone was getting rich, it seemed like, and the internet was booming and stuff like that, and we hadn't gone through like all kinds of crisis, who knows? But they came, it's like the solution arrived because it was people had been trying to solve the problem of digital cash for so long, the solution arrived on earth, like at just the right moment. And I think what you're describing with like your receptive to, to receptiveness to it is exactly right like everything is falling apart and here is this new thing that kind of made sense exactly and i mean satoshi whoever he she it they are like obviously knew that like right like embedding the the times of london yeah yeah headline into the genesis block right right it's an overt statement like yeah this is this is this is uh this is a response to to a very bad system exactly yeah and that, that resonates with people. It resonates with me still to this yeah. day. And ah, it's crazy to think, like, and it, like you were saying, like, you can't believe it's been 10 years since, since like, Business Insider and, like, coming to Bloomberg and starting yeah, a yeah. blog and stuff like that. 
I can't believe I've been in this space like almost 10 years now. Yeah, like, it's wild. It's not almost 10 years, like seven years, but yeah, it's or six years, excuse me. Um, but it's been like a huge, it's been a quarter of my life now. Right. It's like when you think about it, like at, at that level, I'm like, oh shit, man, am I crazy? Like, am I like a crazy gold bug? Like, I do not want to turn into the crazy gold bug. That is something that I'm very conscious of and and want to avoid in the long run. I just want to be some dude that's able to save his money throughout time. And yeah. You know, it's, and uh, the saving your money throughout time question, something I is its own interesting question because it is a form of time travel because what you're essentially the idea of like saving wealth or saving any money from like point a to point b is like you have x amount of purchasing power today right with the money you have in your bank account and you would like to be able to have that purchasing same amount of purchasing power at some point in the future maybe more but it's it's not a trivial question how to do that and you're sort of asking society if you want to do that to say like, Hey, remember I had all this money at time point a, mm-hmm. uh, can you make sure that you let me have the same amount of, but it's like, it's no one's under any obligation to respect that per se. And so people have always tried to, uh, solve that problem. But something I think about a lot is like, think of how big the wealth management industry is. It's one, it's one of the biggest, most profitable industries in the world. If saving money over time was an easy task, that would not be a very big industry because well they don't have the tools of sound money that bitcoin provides you know yeah well i think bitcoin has a long way to go <laughs> to demonstrate that your purchasing power at time a will be anything like or at time b will be anything like what it was at time a we have uh, i i would say that is uh, not proven but again you're talking to somebody who came from the wealth management industry and, and like we were working with yeah. high net worth individuals and preserving wealth but i'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus sure. but the hedge fund and the mutual fund and the whole bdria like landscape it's a fee game at the end of the day. Like I would argue like they sure. And, and, but, and there's, there's, yeah, there's absolutely. little, but like, but the, and I agree, but I think that people are w- willing to pay the fee because the, ascend, the central question of how do you preserve wealth over time is much harder than it looks. And I don't mean like beating the market or anything like that. That's maybe who knows if anyone can really do that consistently. I just mean that like no one is under society is under no obligation to guarantee anyone that they can hold on to their wealth. Like you could like buy land and hopefully the property, that's something, buy gold, but then you have to like pay someone to store it at mm-hmm. risk uh, having it stolen. Like there's things you can do, but you gotta pay up for it. And so the deal is like you can kind of time travel with your money, but no one does it for, you don't get it, there's no, there's no free ride on it. Somehow you're gonna pay. You could, let's just say even even if you were to stipulate that Bitcoin eventually became a stable store of value, you're then going to take pretty significant risks of like losing ac- access to all of it, which ev- numer- that's happened to numerous people. Mm-hmm. So the costs are going to be somewhere. Yeah. Now, you may like that may not be an issue eventually, but the point is, is like, it is not a trivial question to preserve wealth over time. But what if it became trivial? Like it was just very like that's why I like Bitcoin. It's dumb. It's slow. It does one thing, 
What if you could depend on something like that and you knew it was not going to be bastardized in the long run? Like, how does that change society? And we're, like, almost two hours in. Like, we could dive into, like, another 45-minute conversation on this in particular. I'm, uh... Are you okay with, like, a Joe Rogan three-hour podcast? I think, I think, uh... <laughs> I'm, uh... I think my brain is getting... A, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm quite ready to talk about how this is going to change society. You're not even drinking. I know. I'm the one. But I'm not eating very much either. That's true. I need to eat. Yeah. So, uh, I feel like I've... The, the, uh, the odds of me saying something stupid are starting to accelerate <laughs> rapidly every, every second. Well, that's the last thing I want to do is make you look stupid. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not some gotcha journalist. I know. I appreciate Indie that. media guy. Yeah. Um, no, I, it, I'm genuinely curious to see what people think. Like, that's what I, like, I, I consider myself dumb. Like, I'm like, I, no, I think like, you know, just on this, uh, question of like store value, I think it's one of the most interesting questions. Right. And we were talking about it earlier, like different types of assets store value against different types of scenarios. So some is about collapse of fiat currency, maybe some would be. Uh, personal safety, like having land, whatever. Well, um, people always ask, like, if we go into a recession or a depression, is Bitcoin an asset to hold? I'm like, no, because people are going to sell their Bitcoin right, for cash, right, right? Because that's what's going to work. Yeah, like, absolutely. I would say, like, you always sell what you always sell into the currency that you have to pay your bills in. Exactly. So it's like your landlord wants cash. And so if you don't have a job, then you have to start selling things for cash. Exactly. And you know, over time, certain assets be- could become more durable, less risky than others. Um, but there's always there's always risks, and so it's like with uh, with land, which is a might be a good store of value. Like worry about flooding. You could uh, there's all kinds of nat you face natural disaster risk, whatever it is. You're on Yosemite. Um, it could blow up any day. Yeah. Like so uh, I don't think we're ever going to solve the problem of a guaranteed stable store value that you can just set it and forget it and feel confident that it will hold its purchasing power from A to time B to time C. It's all, the risk has to be somewhere. It's just different. And we're going to get cosmic here. Maybe that's something built into our DNA that forces us to always innovate and, and think and think from our feet. Like the complacency of having that type of store value might make us might make it so that we don't innovate to an extent you get it there might be something your to that. yeah it's interesting joe we're we're close to two hours it's been an incredible conversation Honestly, I've, I've really enjoyed it i it's been it's a great discussion you're a really good interviewer so you're you you claim to be anxious about interviewing an interviewer but you are very skilled at it so huh. i thought this was a really enjoyable conversation and i am very excited i'm uh you know, it's funny, like, I, I like that, uh, well, I like, I, I've enjoyed coming on your podcast. Oh, thank you, Joe. I re- like, it's humbling for me in particular. Like, again, been a fan for years. Thank you. One thing on this podcast we do, a final note, a parting word yeah. for the freaks out there. What would it be in regards to anything? <sighs> Bitcoin, career-wise, media, whatever it might be. Final thought, if you will. Um, could be completely random. A final thought on anything. What am I thinking about these days? Um, Reed Keynes, man. He's great. 
I know. No one's going to like that. But Nobody's going to like open that. Open your mind. I'm not. All right. I'll tell you what I want to say after we okay. finish recording. After, you, after we stop recording, you're going to tell me <laughs> what you didn't want to put on record. That's my final thought. But that's what, that's what I've been to right now. And that's a good final thought. Uh, to find out more about Joe, I'm sure most of you are already following him on Twitter, at The Stalwart. Um, every day at 5 p.m.? 3.30 to 5 is my show. 3.30 to 5. 3.30 to 5. Yeah. What did you miss? Bloomberg TV. Check He's got Robert King coming on all the time. Yeah, check it out. He's a Don. Always wearing a bow tie. A big bow oh, tie Tom guy. Keen. Yeah, Tom yeah. Keen. Tom Keen, not Robert. Yeah. Excuse me. He's my idol. He's, uh, he's one of them. He's a consummate professional, I would yes. argue. Um, freaks, thanks for tuning in. Peace and love.